Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. I'm Lucy Hansom. And I'm Egan Lee. In 1979, one of the most seminal sci-fi films ever made was shown for the first time on the big screen. Ridley Scott's Alien is a dark, disturbing and downright terrifying addition to the Hollywood Hall of Fame. 2019 marks 40 years since Alien was born, or possibly ripped from a stomach, so we thought it was a fitting time to look back at this epic film and celebrate one of our favourite kick-ass heroines of all time, Ellen Ripley. So, first, let's think about what went on before Alien, because uh, apparently Ridley Scott was planning to direct Tristan and Isolde, but then he went and saw Star Wars and decided that big-budget special effects movies was the way forward. So, what had female roles in science fiction films looked up looked like up to that point? I think there's certainly an element of Princess Leia in Ripley, in the sense that she's kind of the... She's an authority figure that the others don't necessarily recognize, you know, cause I'm thinking back to, to how Han treated Leia was like, Oh yes, your highness and all that kind of stuff. Um, and you kind of get that with Ripley and the crew in this as well. But I think even so before star Wars, a lot of the, the female parts in, sci-fi films are things like you know i'm thinking of forbidden planet which is yeah that's what i was thinking of (laughs) yeah pretty pathetic or or things like barbarella or (laughs) yeah i think alien does owe a lot to star wars but um i think ripley then takes it further in terms of being an authority figure being someone who is skilled knows what she's talking about all those things that are traditionally lacking in those female characters well i was thinking actually about an interesting comparison with star trek um and i was thinking about star trek the original series i was thinking ironically about galaxy quest so in the original star trek you had um uhura who was really classic and obviously you know we talked about at that time there was all the interracial stuff and it was fantastic to see um any woman but particularly a black woman on screen but she kind of had a rather limited role, which they took the mick out of in Galaxy Quest, where Sigourney Weaver played a similar role to Uhura and basically says, look, the only thing I have to do is repeat the computer's instruction. Don't take that away from me. And I kind of felt that was sort of the role of women within Star Trek. It was great to see them on screen, but they weren't as proactive as, as all the men. I mean, hang and on, then- hang on, oh. hang on, Charlotte. They were also there to make love. To Jim Kirk. Oh, to Kirk, of course, yes. Let's not forget Kirk. <laughs> <laughs> but I, sort of looking at that, and then I was thinking about when we watched Star Trek Into Darkness, and I watched it with my husband, and his comment was that Hura um, in that was the only one who had to fight to be able to do her own job. So she has to convince Kirk and Spock at one point to let her go out and use her languages to try and defuse a situation. And that also reminded me a lot of the stuff I saw in Ripley and Ash's relationship. So Ash has obviously got a a subplot going on and he's got his own agenda. Um, But I noticed that whenever Ash makes a statement, there's only one person who questions it and that's Ripley. And she's, it's never like they've sort of farmed out the questions. So sometimes one person asks questions, someone uh, someone else asks it. It's always Ripley, always questioning him. And his response is always completely patronizing um, and very impatient. And it was really interesting to think about Obviously, how we got from, like you said, Star Trek at the beginning, where they didn't do very much at all, and then Star Wars, where you've got a more proactive woman, but they're all going, oh, yes, your highness, and considering she's a bit snotty. And then you've got the further step, which is Ellen Ripley, who is clearly very competent, but is still not seen as that by Ash, or even at times by Parker, either. She is generally the voice of reason, though, throughout, at every point, Ripley is, you know, say, be sensible. And I suppose for all of Leia's faults as well, she is the same. They get stuck in the prison cells. Just, this is a terrible escape plan. You didn't have a way out. And, you know, she's the one that goes ahead and finds a way out because she's practical. And I think that Ripley is very much of the same type I think she is practical and I think Leia is practical. I mean, Leia is, is still a fantastic character, but I think 
I would say that Ripley is more competent and less she's more of a an authority figure I know that we were discussing trinities the other week and we'll be discussing in future episodes but you've got Leia as the authoritarian so she can go around bossing people around whereas with Ripley you get that whole bit sort of at the very beginning where she is left on the ship and um Ash and even Lambert the other women other woman and the captain all undermine her and say no no you have to let us on he's going to die and she's like no I'm in command of the ship we're going to follow quarantine procedures this is what's going to happen and everybody's going no we're not going to do it and you sort of contrast that with Leia who has authority and everybody listens to her and also Leia who is very emotional and you know definitely would have let them on the ship um and then Ripley who's like no we're going to follow quarantine procedures that is the way we're going to do it by the book we're sort of heading towards the next question that I wanted to talk about, about the difference between men and women within movies. Although Sigourney Weaver made the role of Ripley absolutely her own, it's well known that originally Ripley was written with a man in mind and Ridley Scott was asked to change it for a female role. So this got me wondering, is there anything in Ripley's character um, in the first movie that is particularly masculine or particularly feminine? Do you think it could have just been as easily paid by a man, meaning it's a truly gender-neutral role, or do you think they maybe went in and tweaked it and there were feminine elements to it? I think it's a truly gender-neutral role. This really struck me as uh, maybe it's testament to Sigourney Weaver's incredible acting skills, but it really didn't read like a female. And that's, I mean... I'm talking about stereotypical, how you're used to seeing females portrayed in stereotypical roles in science fiction, especially of this time period. She does; She's not precious about her appearance in any way. And, and that's something that typically kind of identifies and separates uh, women from men. I, I didn't feel that she had any uh, particularly any sexual attraction to anybody on the ship in, in fact that's and that's that's getting into another uh, question entirely that the kind of complete lack of um, romantic elements um but i it's really interesting that you say that because uh, i didn't realize that she um was originally cast to you know for that role to be a man's role um but i i that i think the fact that she's a, a woman is what makes the role so fantastic and it what makes her a wonderful example of a female you know, in this role, because she is completely not stereotypical and she hasn't, and none of her behaviours are stereotypical of, you know, of all the things that we lament on this podcast and complain about and how, you know, women are very often seen as frivolous in these kind of like emergency situations. She, she is totally, she, she behaves like a human being would. And without any uh, baggage or stereotypes attached. And I think that's what makes her so great. Well, it's kind of interesting because when I when I was thinking about this episode and I was writing down some notes, I was like, actually, yeah, no, it is a, a truly gender neutral role. And then when I actually went back and watched it last night, I was, wow, there is a load of sexism in there. I mean, we, I spoke a moment ago about her having to shout down Ash and um, everybody trying to undermine her when she was clearly the most senior officer on the ship. There's the fact that she's always questioning Ash and he's always um, being derogatory to her. There's also a bit where she has to shout down Parker um, when I think it is uh, Brett has just been killed and Parker's like, I want to go and kill the mother effing alien. And uh, Ripley's like, well, I'm trying to tell you how to do that. Are you going to let me talk? He's like, fine, talk. And just he's clearly the senior officer and he's shouting her down and he hadn't done that to any of the previous ones. He'd been really smarmy and nice to them about getting their money and things. And then there was also the bit at the very end that I know Megan and I joked about when we were watching it together, where if that really was a gender neutral role, would the guy have been in his underwear at the end? When he clambers into that spacesuit to escape the alien the final uh... time, would he have been in his tight little tighty whiteies? Would that really have been what it was, do we think? Well, I, I, maybe. I think it may have, to be fair, I do think it may have been because one thing, when I first started watching it before Dad got too sleepy and went to bed, he was sitting there watching it with me and kind of, you know, when they first wake up, when Mother wakes them up in the beginning, there's a shot that basically is straight up John Hurt's underwear as they wake up and it's just right up his groin and Dad was like, oh, lovely. <laughs> uh, maybe, yeah, so true. I mean there is that but I do have to like wonder th those points where you were saying that there's sexism against her and um, 
you know, things like Parker's really horrible to her. Do you think that they did change that? Or was that already in there as it had been written for the male character and we read it as sexism simply because she's a female? That's really interesting because I think that it could have been there and we would never have read it as sexist if she was a man playing that part. We would have just read it as, you know, someone who is the the sane-headed one of the crew trying to do the right thing that we all would hopefully like to think we would do. Um, but the minute you change it to a female, it raises all these questions about workplace sexism. Well, it does. And I think that is one one really good reason for it. But the other thing that we noticed quite a lot of, my husband and I, when we sat and we watched it, was the idea of labour rights and the class system. And that's made clear right at the very beginning when you've got Brett and Parker going, well, hang on, what about our share of the bonus? And there's a very clear divide between the two of them who are like the scummy maintenance crew and look quite scruffy. And then the sort of officers who look smarter and, and more elite and, and things like that. So I guess if it had been a man that had been cast, I suppose it would depend on the type of man. I suppose if you had someone like oh, Benedict Cumberbatch, you could argue that it was a class thing and that the everybody wants to undermine him because they think he's a, a posh boy and he doesn't know very much from that point of view. Because it's very clear they don't think that either Ripley male or female can lead and also they can't ask questions and can't be trusted to make valued decisions and you could sort of put all that within sort of an eaten boy who's trying to prove himself and I think it'd be a terrible film if they did that but that is one interpretation I could see but without knowing who else they they called for casting it it's tough to tell. I also want to pick up on something Lucy said about the way that Ripley presents herself in terms of looks, because that's something that very much stood out for me is, I mean, of course, they probably were wearing makeup, but her and Lambert don't look like they're wearing makeup. They look just as sort of tired and everyday normal as the men do. And I found that really refreshing because how many, you know, sci-fi films have you seen where it's like everyone's mucky and they're, you know, out there fighting, but, you know, they have perfect, like, mascara and they remain contoured and all this kind of stuff. And I just, I loved that you could watch this film and the women were just as grimy as, as the men. Yeah, that really stood out. In fact, the only thing that in the whole film, that, that apart from the workplace sexism, which it was really apparent, the only other thing that really stood out for me about that separated the, the men from the women, uh, otherwise they could all have just been the same you know gender I wouldn't have you know it's not this is not a film about you know these people are men and these people are women it was to do with um Lambert having that kind of screaming panic thing at the end where the eight and he was going get out of the way get out of the way Parker was going get out of the way and it was that that hit me as being like a stereotypically female response to a situation as well as you know if there's something scary, you freeze. We all know that that. But no, in films, typically, it's a very female thing to freeze in place and have the men shout at you to like either they either save you or they say, you know, get out of the way and stop being useless. So that was the only thing that really jumped out at me that if I had to find a kind of uh, feminine stereotype, then that's the thing I would pick. The only other one I would add to that is that Lambert actually cries. There's a moment where Ripley oh, yeah. almost does when she finds out the real like mission that Mother's given Ash. But Lambert cries and then, you know, continues to sort of, she makes a lot of noise. And I guess that goes into the hysterical female bit that you were talking about. But I think it's, I, I found that very interesting that, that she's the only crew member who cries. Mm. This does raise an interesting point when you look back at the kind of the casting and the notes from the script writers in that all the characters were meant to be gender neutral, would be possible to be played by a male or a female. And I find that interesting. We don't know whether or not they specifically wrote in a few extra things for, say, Lambert to make her cry, or if that had been played by a male, if the man had would have cried do you think that the gender neutrality, you know, of the, the the cast was a deliberate choice to highlight the underlying 
and pretty much overlying themes of the film, which is, you know, very obviously a discussion about gender and reproduction and sex. Yes, I like to think it is. Because I feel like um, stereotypes cloud the judgment in a way. Uh, I think if you had a crew that was behaving in a, you know, the, the kind of stereotypes that come from you know, socialization, if they were behaving in a very masculine way or in a very feminine way, it would have obscured the underlying message and themes of the film which are extremely to do with gender i mean like the whole film is is one big kleinian (laughs) um motif i think that's a really interesting comparison but i think you kind of have to break it down into two separate bits um and the idea of gender neutrality and you were asking earlier about whether or not a male who was put in uh, lambert's position would cry uh, I was actually thinking about Aliens, and I went quiet for a minute because I was looking it up on IMDb to remember the name of the private in it. And there's Private Hudson who's in it, and he sort of has the Lambert role. Obviously, we'll be looking at Aliens because it deserves a whole podcast episode all to itself, but in a, a later episode. I was thinking about it, and Hudson is probably the Lambert of Aliens, but not to the same extent, because I guess what you guys were thinking about was the bit where they're all sitting around and it's just killed Brett I think it is no it's just killed Dallas sorry and the chief commander is gone and they're all shouting at each other and I think that could have been gender neutral I think everything everyone in that scene was displaying a a particular trait a particular reaction they were all very different so you had Parker who was the okay something has just killed my friend I'm gonna go kill it you had Lambert, who is, okay, something's just killed my captain. What am I going to do? I'm terrified. You had Ripley, who was, something's just killed my captain. I'm next in charge. I have to be quiet and calm. And then you had Ash of, oh, that thing's just killed my captain. I wonder if I can catch it. Although I suppose they were quite stereotypical reactions, like they had Parker being the one who was gung-ho, and they had Lambert being the one who was crying, I think if you'd got the right person, again, if you'd put Hudson in that role, I think Lambert and Hudson are probably interchangeable. And if you think about it these days, you probably could get a woman to play the same role as Parker did, the gung-ho one. Or even looking at Aliens, if you have Vasquez, she would happily be exactly that role. Um, But I think the thing is that they are truly gender neutral, but because of the time the film was made, they naturally cast men and women in those particular roles. So it's kind of weird. It is, you could swap them out because I know plenty of men who cry and plenty of women who are gung-ho. And yet because of when it was filmed, I think it, they naturally fell into these these situations. And it would be interesting now, actually, if they remade Alien, which, dear God, I hope they never do, whether they did switch all those roles around. It would be fascinating to see, you know, how they could mix it up and whether it would still work as the same film if you played it exactly the same but switched all the roles around. And I, I reckon it probably would. It wouldn't be as good, but it probably, probably would work. So that's the first bit of what Lucy was talking about. And then you talked about... Um, sort of reproduction and and birth and and things bursting out of you. And I thought that was a really interesting point and was actually the next question, because we often talk about how women within fiction are defined by their ability to reproduce. However, in a weird way, the whole point of this movie is that anyone of any sex can give birth, but in a highly traumatic manner to this creature. Um, And the creators have spoken of how they've been inspired by um, parasitic wasps and their sort of life cycle and things. So I I wondered if part of the fear of this film is the idea that men can be subject to the horror and danger of childbirth. And yes, I am using air quotes on that because it's not exactly childbirth, however much people like to joke about it. Or do you think that's just reading too much of a feminine agenda into this film? Do you think it has nothing to do with childbirth and the horror of it and that kind of body horror? Do you think it's trying to create a different message with this idea that something is inserted inside you and then bursts forth and it can happen to the men and it happens to the men first? Well, I think it's completely to do with, uh, I don't think childbirth can be ruled out at all. Uh, when we were look at, looking at notes earlier, is it was pointed out that the there's a lot of goo and uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a lot of liquid uh, involved, um, juxtaposed with a very sterile environment of the rest of the ship. And I think that's that picks up on motifs of childbirth and the, the horror of childbirth and possibly the horror that the fact that it happens to a man is quite is quite interesting and quite telling 
I mean, there was one bit that I noted down as I was going through it when um, obviously Kane is played by John Hurt and he's the one who this creature comes out of. And at one point they're talking about it and they go, whatever you call it. And Ash just leans across and says very quietly, Kane's son. And I was yeah. like, whoa, that's, that's what works on so many levels. Because then it is kind of directly referencing the idea that Kane gave birth to this thing. And also the idea that it was completely men and there was no women involved at all. It was like Kane, a man, and his son. And it was, yeah, I found that very, very telling. And I thought that really did kind of push me over the edge to think, yeah, this is actually the idea that it's quite frightening for men to... Um, to sort of see that this kind of thing can happen to you because it's in a weird way, it's almost like violation. Mm. Um, it's a man being violated. And I mean, you could draw, Oh Lord, if you really did delved into it, I suppose the alien on his face and stuff down his throat, there's a whole load of fellatio you could go into. Um, Definitely. And then get something planted inside you in your stomach that then bursts out and kills you on the way. And everything about childbirth being one of the biggest killers of women in the past I mean, it seems like there's so many parallels. Parallels. It can't necessarily be by accident. I kind no. of feel that's where the, the creators were going for. I don't think it was by accident. And I think these sort of things are archetypal. So I'm, whether it was conscious or not is an interesting question. I think it I would not surprise me if a lot of this stuff came out unconsciously because it, it plays on some really deep elements in like the human psyche. Uh, I mean, even our very first sight of the that kind of um that kind of like crashed spaceship where the, where the eggs are anyway is is phallic it's phallic shaped it was the first thing i noticed about it i was like okay right so that's like the phallic thing and then as i was talking about before the whole film um on a on a like physical light level is really dark and womb like and and there's a lot of so they they use a lot um, of tunnels there's a lot of tunnels and scurrying through tunnels, fallopian tunnels. <laughs> <laughs> so the, I think that this whole film is an examination of reproduction and gender and impregnation and the, the, the multitudes of unborn babies that could like live inside a mother and the, what, how frightening that would be. If you, if you read Kleinian theory, then like, you know, if you get my dad talking about this sort of stuff, he's like, alien, it's a perfect uh, examination of Melanie Klein's theories. And I'm like, that's so, yeah, I mentioned that we were doing this episode to him and that's what he said. So, but it's true. You know, you just have to watch this film and be like, oh, my God, this is. Yeah, there's a lot of like sexual motifs in here and they're not even hard to find. It's it's really obvious. Interestingly, although we obviously say there's quite a lot of parallels to be drawn here with birth and the birthing process and things like that. I wanted to speak about motherhood because although we're not examining aliens in the sequel, there is a very strong emphasis on motherhood, particularly the relationship between the queen alien and her offspring and Ripley and Newt. So I wondered, do you think there is any evidence of it here? Or is there a very strong inference that by being born from an egg far from its siblings, there's no maternal or familial feelings engendered by the alien at all? Uh, is it actually the antithesis of, of motherhood and a nurturing environment? A fact that's made all the, all the more stark by the fact that the cat survives along with Ripley and they're the only two within the film that seem to have any kind of affection or nurturing relationship at all. And I watched all the way through and, and Ripley is basically the only one to be nice to the cat and pet it and have a genuine interaction with it and everybody else is just seems to be out on their own so it was interesting that you've got all of this stuff about birth but nothing about motherhood and raising and I wondered if you had any thoughts on that I did wonder if Ripley because quite early on her kind of concern for Jones is apparent and I wondered if sort of that motherly tendency actually is what makes her worthy of survival well, that's interesting because there's a brilliant um, book on script writing, which I've mentioned before, by Blake Schneider. And the title of it is Save the Cat. And the idea is when you introduce all your characters, the one that's going to be the, the heroine or the hero has to do something to show that they are human, that they are loving, that they have connection with others and they deserve to be the hero and heroine. And all of them are quite self-sufficient, apart from, <laughs> apart from Ripley, who is quite fond of the cat and seems to be the only one who genuinely wants to save the cat. And even makes when they the cat escapes, you've got Parker going, well, look, it's going to show up on the, you know, on the movement again, and we might mistake it. Whereas Ellen Ripley is like, 
they'd go and get the cat, you know, and wants to try and save it and put it in the box and things. So they have very different reasons for wanting the cat out of the picture. One, so they don't think it's an alien, whereas Ripley's like, no, no, I want to save it and take it home. I just thought it was really interesting that there was all this stuff about childbirth, but nothing about the bit that comes after it. And it was, there was no relationships at all between any of the crew. There's no sexual relationships. There's no romantic relationships. There's barely any kindness between any of them. Okay, before we get too too far off on the, the relationships, I did think it was interesting, the whole kind of lack of motherhood. I've always thought that humans are just so kind of pathetic and weak in that we need our parents in order to survive. And so many animals in the animal kingdom, you know, they they're born and then, you know, you're on your own, mate. If you live, you live. If you die, well... You know, you weren't meant to. And I think it's, I don't know what, I kind of read Alien as a bit of a damnation of humanity. Like, you you think you're so high and mighty, you think you're so wonderful, but look at this. This creature was just laying dormant until you came along. It's just born and it can already take out the entire crew. But maybe that's just me. No, absolutely. And I think one of the articles I read in researching this piece... um, was the insect influence within Alien itself uh, and the idea that it was based on the life cycle of the parasitic wasp and also the idea that when it's born, born again, (laughs) using air quotes, it has no desire to do anything but eat and kill and that is its only instincts, which is so, as Megan says, it's so the antithesis of what we are used to of something that comes out of us. We're used to raising it and loving it and nurturing it and it's obviously something that's explored later on in the alien films but if you contrast this body horror with something like um john carpenter's the thing where it's clearly horribly unnatural and it's an alien that takes over your body and it it warps you out of all recognition but with this you've still got that whole idea that it, it did come from a human and it came from a human stomach and it was grown inside them and and then yet it's just so completely, excuse the pun, alien to us in, its, in the way that it works. And it's, I think that's a little extra element of fear that something you would expect to have a human element because it came from a human is just so completely opposite. There's no reasoning with it at all. It shows no human instincts and no mothering instincts, no nurturing instincts and no desire, you know, not to kill the people that basically saved it. Isn't that what we fear possibly deep down that ourselves, that the only thing that makes us human <laughs> is our ability to feel empathy and compassion and to want to nurture children. Um, and that actually there's a, but at the heart of humanity, kind of as, you know, after Origin of Species is published particularly, um, there is this drive to survive that it's like do or die it's it's survival of the fittest it's dog eat dog um and we've built whole economic systems on that um and that's maybe that this is what alien represents it's like this absolutely terrifying primal force at the heart of humanity like we 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 kind of it's it's crazy like the things that we we've trampled over um to try and enforce our own survival um and it's this this kind of um maybe that's terrifying maybe it's a a, a kind of like alien is a as a manifestation of the things that we that that kind of animalistic drive that lives inside all of us that we're trying to pretend doesn't exist it could also be slightly freudian this son kills its father. It just goes around, as you're saying, you know, the, this creature kills the thing that made gave it life, basically. And that's kind of the a lot of fears that we have, that our children are going to basically usurp us. It was very interesting. It was described as the perfect being, like when they were with that, that conversation that Ash has, saying that, you know, it, it's meant to be like it's amazing at surviving like it's what was it it's like it's it's perfections matched only by its hostility (laughs) it's that's really weird and kind of fascinating that they bring up this you know that it's a horror and yet he considers it like or somebody who gave who programmed him to like to bring the specimen back considers it a perfect being 
Well, it kind of is. Like, to even to hurt it, you know, its blood will kill you just as much as leaving it on you will kill you and so on and so forth. So it it is a pretty tremendous being. Taking the conversation in a slightly different direction, uh, I wanted to go back to what Megan said about it being a case of the alien wanting to kill those who had birthed it. It reminded me of Oedipus and reminded me of a comment that my husband made while we were watching it which is he felt that Lambert had a role that was suitable to a Greek tragedy. And he's talking about, obviously, you know, you have like um, the prologue who comes on and all this kind of thing. But you also have a character in it who always kind of states what's going on and reflects what the audience should be feeling, which is very much what Lambert does. She goes around saying things like, oh, no, we shouldn't go in there. I'm too scared. I want to go back. Or, oh, yeah, obviously, we're going to go out and investigate it in a really sarcastic way, indicating that she thinks it's a terrible idea. And then she's also one of the ones who says, oh, well, you need to let let us in or Cain is going to die. And just thinking about what Megan said, I wonder if one of the reasons this film is so good and has stood the test of time is because it does have a much deeper meaning to it and brings a, a structure of something like a Greek tragedy to it, which you haven't really had before. When you think about the horror films that went before it, um, Alien's reasonably old, so it's before all sort of the slasher movies and things like that. And generally horror films are like Hitchcock, where one or two people die in a very kind of dramatic way, whereas this thing just kind of blitzes through them. It is kind of like a tragedy where just everybody dies and then you have a moral at the end. I don't know. I mean, this whole thing around the fear, this whole film is about, Obviously, it's it's a horror film, so it it is obviously trying to make us fearful. But it's kind of the ultimate fear of the other. And I I had a weird thought when I was watching it last night. The literal alien as other, it kind of topples masculine power and brings them to the level of the females. You know, where things like childbirth and all these horrendous things that women have to go through and rips their bodies apart and now it's happening to the men as well and so this other topples the patriarchy and so that only another other in this case a woman can beat Ah, you know the aliens male crushing otherness (laughs) and i so to me i i i wondered if some of the kind of the power behind the you know the fear inducement that comes from alien is that the men are disempowered, that the patriarchy is kind of crumbling as this very, uh, you know, the birthing of the aliens, this very feminine thing that's happening to them, which is horrific. And I mean, I have so much awe for Charlotte because I think childbirth generally is horrific. <laughs> um, but, you know, I do wonder if the, the fear comes from this disempowerment of the the men within the film and if that is part of what makes it so terrifying well that's really interesting you should say that because it reflects another point that i wanted to you know kind of discuss uh, involved in disempowering you were saying you had this other that disempowers them and then obviously the other other being the, the woman that saves them but i think ash and his role in it has a, a lot to be said about masculinity and sexism and things like that so we obviously talked earlier about how ash is you know constantly being questioned by ripley and he's always putting her down and he's the one who opens the airlock and lets Kane and Dallas in when Dallas and Lambert are shouting at her and going, let us in, let us in. She's like, no. And it's actually um, it's actually Ash who is the one who saves them when Kane and Dallas, the two, you know, two senior crew members are completely powerless. But then, of course, Ash turns out not only to have an agenda, but to not actually be male at all. He turns out to be an android. And I, I thought that was really interesting because... You've kind of got, like you say, the alien disempowering men, Ripley trying to help who is the other, and then the only person who can control Ripley and in effect can understand and control the alien also turns out to be an android. So it's like a triple whammy for the men in it. It's like we've got the alien against us, we've got the android against us, and we've got the woman. So there really is no help for them, I have to say. Yeah, I mean, one of the notes we were looking at earlier was this talked about the, you know, whether the undercurrent of sexism was essential to selling the authenticity of the relationships and the atmosphere on board the ship. And I think there is something in that. And what's so interesting about Ash's revelation, you know, that he's at it is actually, you know, like an android, is that the fact that he was 
pre-programmed to behave towards Ripley in a certain manner maybe not towards Ripley specifically but that's how we see it um you know he he obviously you could how much can you put this down to he him having his own agenda like clearly he wanted to get that alien inside and have a look at it but he you cannot ignore how many times he vocally and very physically at one point like puts her down Mm. and overrules her and and I can't help but read that as this kind of like inherent but what's so interesting is that he's an android so who put those programs into him you know as as, along with his agenda the fact that he was kind of pre-programmed and is that does that make him more um does he then fit into the fabric of the crew in a more believable way? I mean, uh, when I, I didn't, I went into this film, I hadn't seen it before, so I had nothing, I had no idea what to expect, didn't realise he was an android. Uh, and I just believed his behaviour, maybe because I've been kind of programmed myself to see that, you know, there's a strong-willed woman who knows what she's talking about, and they strong-willed women who know what they're talking about are often put down by men out of you know the own man's kind of fear of of a strong woman um so yeah i mean and and that was extremely believable well i remember watching this when i was a lot younger and i still get the same feeling when i watch it now there's a bit where the face hugger has dropped off john hurt john hurt is still comatosed and dallas and ash and ripley are all poking at it it looks like some kind of oyster it's really bizarre but oh god and there's so many more sexual connotations there as well a particular look of the thing but moving that aside there's the same repartee between ash and ripley where ripley's going well what are we going to do and you can just see ash getting totally pissed off with her and the bit i found quite terrifying is the fact that he gets really pissed off with her and he literally turns his head turns effectively turns his back to her and says to dallas in a super reasonable voice it's got to go back with us dallas and you can see Dallas going, yeah, he's right. And I found that really unnerving as a young woman to see someone saying, well, look, this, you, you shouldn't do this. And two guys just going, no, no, we're, we're going to, to go together on this. And I know what Lucy's saying about who programmed him with this stuff. But one of the things I found quite scary about Ash is that I never thought he was programmed with this stuff. I thought he was just programmed with this one command. And then he played everyone off against each other. And that was so frightening that he knew exactly what buttons to push to get Dallas to work and to get all the others to do what they needed. But with Ripley, he couldn't. And the only way he could control Ripley was by controlling the men who controlled her. And I found that quite unnerving as a young woman watching this. That is a really interesting point. Yeah. And it's it's quite eerie how um how kind of like not freaked out the other men are at the beginning when they see what's happened um to is it Kane? Yes. Uh, yeah. Like the the thing that really got me was immediately when they they he has that like breathing leg thrust down his throat and and he's being basically raped and impregnated and they seem to kind of not be so worried about this <laughs> and that was horrendous to me and the whole like fellatio thing that you know with the rolled up newspaper that happens later the alien itself like the more phallic stuff it's it's kind of interesting how it rendered it's are we seeing like a kind of like um you know we talked about uh the beauty uh elia whiteley's the beauty before where men became kind of women and there's there's this kind of like merging of 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 genders on a physical level is this kind of this is does this does alien do something similar does because kind of this seems to me what happens to Cain that he kind of goes through this um transformation from male to female and it ends it ends pretty badly for him <laughs> well that's a really interesting point about Cain and transformation and how contact with the alien will change you and change you in a very dramatic way one thing I sort of notice and it's kind of mixed in with sexism and I think it depends on your viewpoint is the bit where Ripley has found out what Ash's overarching responsibility is and then Ash attacks her and they have all these sort of establishing shots where it looks like Ash is clearly losing his mind and his method of trying to kill her is to throw her on a table and then put a rolled up paper in her mouth, evidently in an an effort to choke her. And it wasn't until someone pointed out to me 
that actually what he tries to choke her with is a pornographic magazine. And if you look carefully, when he throws her onto the table behind her are a load of naked women, which in years and years of watching this, either I had never explicitly noticed or had just completely bypassed me. And it did take a whole new spin on it. And I can't decide the way that Ash acts is whether or not it is a, like we say, fellatio and trying to have a very sexual act and trying to control her that way because he has tried to control her mind and mentally and tried to overrule her and has failed at every turn. And this is the ultimate thing that a man can do to control a woman. Or coming back to the idea that Lucy was talking about transformation, whether because we find out just a few minutes later that Ash really admires this creature, whether he's trying to kill her in the same way that the creature tries to kill people. So is he trying to transform himself from an android into a man and control her through a very violent sexual act? Or is he trying to transform from an android into a kind of killer alien and kill her in the same way that it kills it's killed the rest of the crew quite successfully? And I, I do think that there is a very interesting point to be made there, depending on how you view it. Or is it a bit of both? Or is it neither? Well... I kind of thought that he might have a kind of Asimov thing in that he couldn't actually kill a human being. So I thought he was just trying to humiliate her, but maybe that's just my own reading from all the other sci-fi I've got up in my head. But to me, it seemed like he wasn't trying to kill her so much as just yeah humiliate her in his way to try and control her. Mm. Well, he was obviously, uh, a sexual connotations aside, I mean, stuffing something in someone's mouth stops them from talking. And as Charlotte pointed out a minute ago, clearly he could, you know, he could not sway her, he could not conquer her on an intellectual level. And she verbally challenged him at every turn. So in a way, the thrusting of the magazine into the mouth was, you know, not just a sexual act, it was also, you know, a silencing act uh, on a more intellectual way because he felt challenged by her. That's true. Although I'm sitting there going, oh, they did an episode of Midsummer Murders about that. <laughs> I'm sure that's not what they were going for. So talking about changes and transformation, um, as I said, I got the director's cut when it came out. And in it, in the director's cut, the ship computer is actually called Father. Whereas in the theatrical release, it's called Mother. And I thought this was quite a strange change to make. And I wondered if you thought this change is an important one. Um, Is it crucial whether the computer which runs everything, uh, but is still at their command, has a certain gender or a parental connotation? Because clearly it was important enough to the filmmakers to swap it round. I think it's interesting. Well, I think it's important to the film that it has a parental connotation. I think it would have to be either father or mother. At first, I thought, well, mother does make a lot more sense because we, you know, that I saw the ship as a womb. I saw quite a lot of, of womb imagery in this film. And to have them refer to, to the ship as mother kind of backed up that, that theory. But as I was just saying about Kane and his kind of transformation into you know from male to female i don't think it would have made an enormous difference having it the ship as father because i kind of the the lines between genders are blurred in this film particularly on a physical level so having him having you know a, a he for the a pronoun kind of for the ship wouldn't have I don't feel like would have made it an enormous difference um if if you're kind of looking at it from you know when you know you're looking at it from a parental um I I think personally I think it works better as mother um maybe just because it makes it more obvious uh, and it kind of it kind of ties in with um with the rest of the kind of motifs that the wombs and the the tubes uh, and the, the the childbirth that we were talking about well, I totally have to agree with the wing stuff because I love the fact that they sit in this tiny little circular room with with nice lights and it's all padded and it looks really warm and cosy. And I like yeah, the idea and it's you safe, you know? It is. It looks safe when the doors the shut answers. behind them. But to me, it made a real difference watching it and it bugged me all the way through that it was called Father. And I, I tried to figure out why. And I think a lot of what we've discussed here sort of answers that question, um, particularly a bit when we're talking about the idea of the other and different a different kind of birth and you've got this idea that you've got 
birth but without motherhood if that makes sense and it's the same with the computer you've got a computer that is called mother and should be there to look after you but is completely and utterly devoid of any emotion useless well not useless but it is so interesting yeah I mean, it is woman and it is controlled, but at the same time, it is also kind of controlling them because it's got this hidden secret that it takes Ripley to to uncover about Ash and his his directive. Mm-hmm. But I just thought it was really interesting that if you go and you say mother, given the film and the era and, well, even now, you say mother in a film and you expect there to be some kind of emotional response, some kind of nurturing, caring for you, but it isn't. It's just... It's just a computer and you do have sentient computers in science fiction or various different things. I mean, the perfect example is Moon. I think that's a brilliant film just at the end with Gertie where it sort of helps him out and you wonder if it's why it does it and why Gertie is kind of helping out, whether it's there is a kind of an emotional feeling there or whatever. And I think that's a wonderful exploration of that. But back in the 1970s when this was put on, Again, mothers are supposed to be kind and nurturing. And here you've got a computer that doesn't care and is hiding stuff from you. And even when you go into this safe room to ask it questions, either it doesn't tell you um, and it doesn't give you reassurance. Like when Dallas goes, oh, what are my chances? And like, cannot compute. Instead of you'd ask your mum, what are my chances? Be like, oh, you'd be all right, honey. Don't worry. You're wonderful. Whatever. It's like, no, cannot compute. Mm-hmm. I think it really hammers home this idea of a lack of a, a nurturing environment combined with the fact that none of the crew have any kind of romantic or affection between them and that bit at the end where Ripley shuts it down and yells out but I've turned it all off mother and the countdown just keeps going it's that final nail in the coffin going even your mother when you shout at her is still going to kill you because you've not obeyed the rules and it's Carrie, you know exactly what it references um Kleinian psychology again about the bad mother you know that she talks about the good mother and the bad mother and this is the archetypal bad mother the evil mother that consumes her young that does it cares not she cares not for you know for for, for the individual that there is she, she is a constant threat um, and that's that's echoed throughout so many bits of this film, you know, from from like the actual alien itself to the ship and that kind of wonderful uh, disregard that it shows, you know, relying on the computer and the computer just keep computer says no like, all the time. <laughs> and then that that brilliant where she's just calling it a bitch, calling her a bitch and shouting and everything is, is kind of going to pieces. Yeah, it's totally archetypal bad mother stuff. Well, I kind of feel that we've got into the real nitty gritty of this and got down to the tiniest details, which is the name of the computer. So before we finish, I'd like to pull it back. And I've got a couple of questions about the film in general and its context and setting within other films. So it's actually um, quite a long time before Ripley shows herself as the main protagonist. A lot is made of the command structure at the beginning. And Ripley, quite honestly, doesn't seem like the most likely survivor. Uh, you've got the two main leads you've got um, Dallas and Kane who look to be very much in command and very sensible and it really looks like it's going to be them so do you think it adds to the tension of the film and plays on the audience idea that the men who are initially portrayed as the most competent are in fact the first to die do you think the film takes the audience preconceptions of the time and uses that to turn it on its head and make it even more horrific that the ones you think are going to be lined up to be the heroes turn out to be the first ones to explode I'm not sure because I, I think this is tricky because I don't necessarily know where my thoughts are coming from in terms of the the timelines of sci-fi here. But for me, I I feel like a lot of the heroes are the underdogs. So having the hero be, say, like the the captain, or you know, it, that to me wouldn't have worked because those people kind of shouldn't be. I think it's I think it's quite effective um, the way that um, yeah I mean you do generally go into films thinking that that it is such a horror stereotype isn't it having the screaming woman getting killed first and running into blind alleyways and stuff so I think that whether it does it consciously or not it does it is a surprising film um, with regards to the the survivors um although you know obviously the single survivor um but i kind of thinking back i'm thinking that the the men really meet the ends that their character arcs 
kind of deserve that um not in a mean way just in the way that they're they're true to their characters if you see what i mean i don't think anyone acts uh, in an unusual way than to the way that they've actually been set up in the beginning and it's almost like they almost get killed by accident they and and it's there's something very realistic about the way they they die off kind of one by one it's there's a like it seems to be inevitable that the alien will kind of get them all but in a way a lot of them seek their own deaths i i feel like although the alien is like the ultimate predator it's also i mean they they basically do a lot of the hard work for it and they a lot of them end up kind of deliberately going to meet their deaths uh which is in a way quite a masculine trope possibly why ripley survives because she doesn't do that well it's interesting about talking about why ripley survives which leads me on to my final question which is in horror fiction and in horror films the trope of the final girl is is long established an alien seems to follow the same mechanics here that there's one very good looking woman oh yeah is left standing at the end and even Lambert is one of the last to be killed with all the men going first. So despite that, Alien doesn't seem to feel like a final girl trope film. And I just wondered if you agreed or whether you felt it was just another horror trope film where one girl is left standing at the end. Or do you think maybe the fact that she's so competent or the fact that she's the underdog or so unexpected or that she has this nurturing relationship? Is there something about Alien which makes it different from other final girl trope films? I think it's the lack of sexuality because a lot of the final girl trope, you know, it's it's always it's linked to promiscuity and the final girls are the ones that haven't been sleeping around or they, they're virtuous in some way. And I don't think that that can be applied to Alien, you know, as we've discussed without the with the lack of sexual tension. And although there is obviously the, the sexual violence element there's no kind of romantic sexualization, and I think that without that, it doesn't fall into the final girl trope. Yeah, I agree with Meg. I think that's a really interesting um, point that there is this to, to link it with promiscuity and to link it with the kind of traditional um, female survivor. I yeah also the whole protagonist thing i think that's very interesting because you just you're only very very like subtle hints to tell you that that you know that she'll become the kind of main protagonist of, of the the film and that's really clever because generally you know from the kind of very start who you're kind of supposedly rooting for. Um, and in this one, not so much. Um, and I think that's another pointer to its kind of gender neutrality, the gender neutrality of the cast, um, that there aren't any stereotypes kind of working overtime here. The fact that it is 40 years later and we're still talking about a film that stars only nine actors shows that it's not well-known names and big budgets that can make an epic. Alien works on so many levels, whether it's just a good old-fashioned horror movie with a terrifying monster and plenty of jump scares, or is a piece of cinema that examines gender, parental roles, and the other. It is a film that tells us, while in space nobody can hear you scream, they can still hear your sexism loud and clear. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond, and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.